This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, and today for our hot question of the day, it's all about your language, your vocabulary, and whether or not you like to swear how often you do this. The reason why we're talking about it is the research company, uh, the polling firm, has asked Canadians some questions about this and some really fascinating results is what they came up with. Almost two-thirds of the people they surveyed said that they have witnessed a person swearing in public at some point over the last month. That's quite a few. Women, by the way, more likely than men to remember this. Women were like 68% of the women they asked said, yes, I remember hearing this in the last month. 60% of men said that they remembered the same thing. And was there a province where this seemed to happen more than any other? Yes. As a matter of fact, there was. Alberta. Albertans were more likely to report that they had witnessed someone swearing, 71% of them, uh, than any other region of Canada. Atlantic Canadians came close second, something like 67%. And get this, people in Quebec were the least likely to say that they noticed someone swearing in public. 51% of people said that. (laughs) This is so fascinating. Uh, So we're asking you today about swearing and etiquette. Are bad words a regular part of your vocabulary? Like, are you one of those people who occasionally drops a word that you should not be dropping, especially in public? Is it only when you get upset or do you find swearing offensive or are, admit it, are you a potty mouth? Those are the three choices that we have for you in our hot question of the day today. You can call our buzz line with your thoughts on this. And listen, all thoughts are welcome. Some people will absolutely not use a swear word. Others feel it is a release good article in the New York Times recently too about uh, what does it say about you, your vocabulary, how your brain works when you swear and it turns out it's not a bad thing for your brain. In fact it helps you kind of release steam and so it's actually a good thing for people who do swear. Uh, but you may not believe that. You may just think, listen, this is bad form to do this kind of thing. So call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. And let us know your thoughts on swear words. This research company poll says two-thirds of us have heard somebody swearing in public in the last month. And if you have, have a story, share it with us. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. And as well, of course, we're doing this poll, right? So it's got to be online. You'll find it on uh, social media, on Twitter. Uh, you you can go to my account, which is Sarah 980 or you can go to at CKNW and let us know there. Cast your vote on what it is. Do you swear only when you get upset? Do you find swearing offensive? Or do you swear all the time because you're a potty mouth? Go ahead and let us know your thoughts on that. Well, we are live today. Our show is broadcasting from BC Children's Hospital. We're actually in the ambulatory care building, right in front of all the clinics that they have there, uh, just down from the Starbucks. So come by and say hi to us if you are in the vicinity. We are here to support BC Children's Hospital Lottery, the Choices Lottery, as a matter of fact. The deadline for this, the early bird deadline, is tonight. And I have been told that they are more than 92% sold out at this point for the early bird. This is something you want to get in on. There are some great prizes and great reasons as well uh, to get involved in this. And that's what we're going to talk about right now with the help of our guest, Hitesh Kathari, who's the Vice President and CFO of BC Children's Hospital. Hitesh, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me. This is a big deal. You guys are ni- more than 92% sold already. Yeah, we're tracking ahead of uh, previous years. So we're selling out really, really quickly this time. And what do you think the reason for that is? Is it just awareness or... It's a whole combination of things, but obviously the cause is one that resonates with so many people in this province, and uh, we're very fortunate to be able to raise money for the kids of BC. 
I think that's a great cause. I think that's a, a gimme, right? Yeah. As you said. Yeah. Uh, but the private jet to Maui also helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who wouldn't want that, eh? Who yeah. wouldn't want that for your early bird prize uh, or, or vacations for life or, or even yeah. to turn 50000 in cash? The, the uh, types of uh, prizes that we offer, not just for the early bird, for the, for, for the grand prize option and all the other prizing that goes with this lottery are, are, are definitely a big draw as well. Oh, yeah. Like this year, I think you guys have gone above and beyond. So as yeah. Tesh was mentioning there, the early bird prize, even if you win the early bird prize, you still go back in the draw for the regular big draw, which is happening uh, on May the 2nd. But your early bird prize, the deadline is tonight. One of them is private jet travel, a Learjet to Maui for six people with five nights, five-star accommodation, plus a 2019 Tesla Model X. Correct. And $50,000 cash. Yeah. Do you guys just sit around and think, what else can we throw into a prize pack <laughs> that's going to make people buy tickets? Yeah, well, why not? It's supposed to be a dream or a choice uh, you know, of, of a lifetime, right? So It really yeah. is. Uh, but, you know, people also buy because they want to know where the money is going. So Absolutely. how critical is this money to the hospital? It's very critical. We, uh, we raised uh, a ton of money through our two primary lotteries and this one's Choices and Dream later on in the year. And all the money, all the proceeds go to helping support research at the, uh, at the hospital. We're very lucky that uh, the research facility is located right here, right next to the clinical care facility. And so we have researchers and clinicians working together to really provide the best treatment and care for the kids at BC. I guess if, if you haven't been to Children's Hospital for a while, you really should come and take a look around. I, yeah. Even as I was walking here yeah. um, from where I was parking, it's so many changes going on around here. For sure. And with the opening of the new you know, Tech Acute Care Center in October of 2017, it's just a... It's an amazing facility, and the even just the artwork here is oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's really built for the kids, uh, taking into you know mind that this is a children's hospital, not just a regular hospital. And I would encourage people. Uh, obviously, nobody wants to be here for for, the, for for that reason, but but if you get a chance to be here and and check out the uh, the facility, it's it's a first class facility. Tell me about the new emergency room, emergency department you've got going on there. Uh, a whole yeah. new entrance, it looks whole fabulous. new entrance, and you've got the uh, virtual aquarium right there for the kids that just uh, occupies the kids for, for quite a period of time while they're waiting you know, to be served. And uh, just the whole facility is just uh, world class. Is it easy to attract people to come and work here? Like, I know you guys have world class facilities yeah. here. We do, and we've got world-class you know, clinicians and researchers as well. So I, I think it, it definitely is a draw. We, like every other Vancouverite, struggle with real estate pricing, you yes. know, pricing, I should say. And so that can always be a bit of a factor in terms of attracting the top talent because you're competing with the world, right? But we're very, very lucky that we do have some of the top brains and, and researchers uh, right here. What goes into the philosophy of like what you do here at Children's Hospital? How do you decide how you're going to approach a new building or a new emergency department or something like that? Um, well, it's really a, a coordinated effort because you know we as a foundation are just one arm of it, and, and we're really looking to the research and as well as the, uh, the the doctors at the hospital to to tell us where the priorities are for the uh, for the campus, and that's what we determine where we raise the money for. Right, because yeah. I remember that when it came to the new Tech Acute Care building over here. Uh, the thought, the design, oh, yeah. and everything was like a huge process. Yeah, they sp and this was before I got here, but they spent years, uh, you know, uh, planning it and and trying to figure out um, how to make it, uh, you know, last for a long time, but also very specifically for children, right? Children in mind. Yeah. And and having the sort of the uh, the openness uh, concept and having natural light come in, 
and all those things were, were built into the uh, the planning stage. I find it interesting that newer hospitals that are getting built, like say St. Paul's or whatever, are talking about you know patient-centered care. Yes. But that's always been the case at Always. It's always right? been, yes, for sure, for sure. You always try to put the kids first. How do you Absolutely. do that? Absolutely. Well, like I said, the other thing that we have the advantage of is we don't just have the clinical care facility here. We do have the research, which the, you know, the lottery supports. And for researchers to be able to do their work right here alongside the patients um, and then take that to hopefully some innovation in terms of how they deliver the, the child care in the future and hopefully some discoveries as well. It's, it's, we're very lucky to have it all in one place. And we're yeah. now you know, soon to have a rehab facility as well really? right on campus. Yeah. And what's that going to be like? Fantastic. It's, yeah. it's a Sunny Hill uh, facility that's currently located off-site, but that's mi- migrating here. Uh, sometime in next year. So it'll be like yeah. a huge campus all in one exactly. place for everybody to one come stop to. shop. Yeah. And the other thing to remember though is that uh, you know we are we serve the whole province and so although the facility is located here there's a lot of telehealth that happens and a lot of travel clinics that are done by the doctors and researchers as well to serve the needs of the population across the, the province. Right, that's always the key. That's why mm-hmm. I, I remember being taught years and years and years ago that we don't say children's hospital, we say BC's children's hospital. Exactly, exactly. Because it is for the whole province. For sure. You'd mentioned that the money for the lottery goes towards research projects. What's yeah. some of the critical research that's going on right now? It's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of research that takes place in, in childhood diseases, be it diabetes, be it cancer, be it cystic fibrosis. Um, and, and the real benefit of the money that we raise is that uh, for every dollar that we raise through the lotteries for research, the researchers are able to get matching external grants of $5. So five times the leverage for really? every dollar. Yeah, which is fantastic. Is that because the lottery money provides them with the initial money? Yes. And then they can go and say, look, at we're this far. Yes. Now we need to get over. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So let's show people what they're going to sure. get with this thing here. Okay. So what is in this great prize package? Well, like you know, like you, like we've talked about before, there's eight grand prize options. Um, there's uh, homes. Uh, these are like uh, beautiful luxury homes in South Surrey, uh, Squamish, Victoria, Kelowna. We've also got a couple of condos in Vancouver that are part of prize packages. And if all that doesn't appeal to you for whatever reason, you can always take the cash of two point two million. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it really is a life-changing event for you know a grand prize winner. Have you seen that happen though? I guess like when people win, you've probably seen their life change. Yeah, I'm I'm fortunate enough that I get a chance to call that person uh, right what? after the uh, the really? person's drawn. Yeah. So it's it's fantastic when you get them you know right after they've just yeah. been announced as the winner, and they're usually in disbelief, but. Uh, it's, it's a great great thing That'd to be, be able to do job. for someone. Yeah, That's a great job. I hope to hear from you then. I hope that you're calling <laughs> me when that happens. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. Listen, good luck with the lottery. Thanks, Amy. Much appreciated. Anytime we can help, that is what we are here for. Uh, so we are talking about the BC Children's Hospital Lottery. It's a choices lottery. Tonight is the uh, early bird deadline. That is midnight tonight. They are more than 92% sold on this. Uh, you want to get in on this because even even if you win the early bird, you still get in the draw for the big one, right? Correct. Yeah, you can't Correct. lose. You yeah. absolutely can't lose on that one. Uh, the early bird prize, you can choose vacations for life. You can travel the world in luxury on that one. Or you can choose a private jet travel trip. That's a Learjet to Maui for six people with five nights, five-star accommodation. Plus, they'll throw in a 2019 Tesla Model X. Plus, they'll throw in $50,000. Uh, that's amazing. And that's just the early bird draw. I haven't even gotten to the... Uh, 
houses yet. And you know what? I haven't bought my tickets. So <laughs> well, you better do that. I'm going to have to do that right now. Hitesh, thank you so much for joining us on this today. Thank that you. is Hitesh Kathar, who's the VP and CFO of BC Children's Hospital Foundation. Get your tickets now. Go to bcchildren.com. You can also give them a call at 604-692-2333. Well, let's check in with our hot question of the day, shall we? Because I'm always curious as to people's, let's say, vocabulary habits. And that's what we're talking about today. There's this new research company poll that said swearing is considered to be one of the biggest etiquette faux pas in Canada. And in fact, two thirds of Canadians say that they heard someone swear in a public place in the last month. So we're asking you, do you make swear words a regular part of your vocabulary? Right now, according to our poll, 51% of people are saying they only swear when they get upset. 41% of people are admitting to being a potty mouth. 8% 8% say they find swearing offensive. Now, you can cast your vote on this, Simi Sarah 980 And I've got some really good emails on this topic, too, which we will get to coming up. But right now, we want to check in with Richard Zussman, our Global BC legislative reporter. And the reason why is, over the last couple of days, we've been talking a lot about ride-sharing, ride-hailing, and that whole debate over what type of driver's license is going to be necessary to be able to potentially uh, work for one of those companies uh, that offer ride hailing here. Uh, Should it be a class four? The recommendations from the MLA's committee that came out earlier this week said, no, it should just be regular class five license. Something it sounds like the government is rejecting. Transportation Minister Claire Trevena said that, no, no, she doesn't accept that. She wants it to be a class four. This morning, she was on the John McComb show to explain why. It's safer because there's the extra testing. There's there's obviously an extra driving test, but there's also the medical test to make sure that people are are healthy, uh, that there are no there are no medical problems that could you know cause cause an accident, which would be obviously horrific for both the the driver, for the passengers, and for other road users. I've got to be cognizant that there are other road users, not just the driver and the passenger that we're dealing with. It also uh, ensures that you've got a you know a good driving record. And um, it makes sure that you, you, don't, you do know the mechanics of your vehicle. So if something goes wrong, you don't, don't just say, uh, I, I, I don't know what's happened, but you, can, you, you are aware of your vehicle will be safe to get on the road. Well, that is... I think this, I think, and I think this is particularly important for when you're driving your own car. All right, so that was Transportation Minister Claire Tavena on with our John McComb this morning. And the thing is, everything she said there, shouldn't that just be a consideration for a regular driver too? Uh, we're going to talk more about this sticking point now with Richard Zussman, who joins us. Hi, Richard. Hey, Simi. I know a lot of people now, are gov- probably swearing, waiting uh, for this ride-sharing <laughs> thing to finally get here. <laughs> are you a potty mouth, Richard? I'm not, but my wife is uh, a bad, uh, bad, Lisa bad, used big-time. We know she that. <laughs> She's a big-time potty <laughs> mouth. So, uh, you know, together we, you know, it sort of is normalized in our household, but she is a big, big-time potty mouth. Oh, I remember. She was my very first producer here on the show. Uh, but we digress. Uh, let's talk about this ride-sharing, ride-hailing issue. All the things that Claire Trevena is talking about there, it seems to me, should be a consideration just for regular drivers as well. Why are they sticking to this? All right, Simi. So I've asked Minister Trevena about this now for three straight days. And I think the two most solid answers I've heard from her in this regard is, first, the Vancouver Police Department recommended class four and it would be irresponsible for a government to not take the public safety advice uh, from a police force especially one as large as the vancouver police department i guess that's legitimate the other one is if you're a parent and you put your child in the back of a ride sharing vehicle don't you want to know that it's the safest possible ride i get that too 
But what the, she has not been able to explain at all, Simi, is where is the proof that a class four driver is actually any safer than a class five yeah. driver? I've heard tons of examples. You know, you send your kid uh, to school to go on a field trip and a volunteer parent drives your child to the field trip. They have a class five license. You know, there's lots of examples. Operation Red Nose at Christmas time. You know, you go to a party, uh, this volunteer service comes to drive you home in your own car. They have a class five license. Do you ever feel not safe? Is there any proof you're not safe? I think the province needs to do a better job at explaining to the public why class four is actually safer. Because as you mentioned, everything the yeah. minister has mentioned is just something that a class five driver should also have. You should understand your vehicle. You should understand the mechanics of it. When you do apply for a class five license, uh, you need to uh, put forward your restrictions. And, and again, that the, the, discretion, the, the difference here is in a medical test, a doctor will say, well, you need corrective lenses. You have diabetes. Uh, you have a hearing problem. In class five, uh, you need to self-disclose all of that. But I, right. again, we need to make the assumption that people are honest. You know, I wear uh, contact lenses and on my license, yeah. I told ICBC, I wear contact lenses. I think people who have diabetes or have hearing problems also disclose that with restrictions. Quickly, Simi, the reason I bring up hearing problems is because many people are concerned that um, class four licenses are very hard to get for people who are deaf or close to deaf. Oh, uh, I okay. asked Minister Treven about that today. She said you can get a class four with restrictions, but there's many in the deaf community uh, who have emailed me saying they are concerned about the restrictions and that they don't feel, uh, they feel like they're going to be unfairly prosecuted against to drive ride sharing because they can't get that yeah. class four. Also important to note, all taxi drivers have class fours. I think that's part of why this conversation was started. Yeah. But, but deaf people are, are legitimately concerned that these rules will preclude them from being part of ride sharing. Also, what are they going to have to do to make this work? Uh, that's a lot of people yeah. who may be then applying for a class four. She talked about hiring more inspectors. Like they're going to have to really overhaul the system if they're going to try to get all these new people to get class four licenses. So two big things on that point too, Simi. We did a story yesterday for the news hour about uh, these two issues. The one you mentioned, hiring extra testers for ICBC. Yeah. Uh, David Eby says they will be hired. We will have as many as we need. Uh, but, you know, as the... The way this is being laid out is you can start applying for a license in the fall if you're a company like Uber and Lyft. And then at that point, they'll start their recruitment and they want to be on the road, you know, as soon as possible. So you may have this very small window of drivers who are all applying at the same time for class four. And David Eby yeah. told me yesterday, well, they should apply now if they think they're interested in ride sharing. Well, if we don't know if Uber and Lyft are for sure coming... Somebody doesn't want yes. to put in the $100 to get the license plus the $200 to get the medical test without knowing for sure if they're going to drive. And the other one, Simi, I see as being problematic. Again, you have to get this checkup. And these are people who, you know, are, are reasonably healthy in many uh, regards. They will have to go to their family doctor and get this checkup. They pay for it, sure, but it could be put a burden on the system where thousands of people all show up in the span of a few months to get a checkup and people are already having a hard time going to their family doctor. I asked Adrian Dix, the health minister, about that yesterday. He doesn't believe it's a big issue. He says, you know, we need to focus on safety. Safety yeah. is the priority, even if it does put a strain on the system. But I think it will be pretty frustrating for people if they can't get to see their family doctor because all these seemingly healthy people are going there to get a medical check so they can be ride-sharing drivers.
Well, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot more about <laughs> this. So, Richard, thank you for updating us. Yeah, it's going to be my pleasure as always. Thank you. Appreciate that. Richard Zussman, Global BC legislative reporter on this Class 4 slash Class 5 debate. You know, we tend to glamorize Hollywood North and the film industry here in BC. We take a lot of pride in it, right? But there are actually a lot of stories that are troubling about it. Take, for instance, the animation industry. It's a firm of Vancouver animators who worked on a very well-known animated film, and they've won a very big case at the Employment Standards Branch, and it all has to do with being paid overtime. Now, Elizabeth Reed is an employment and human rights lawyer at Bowton Law and joins us now to tell us more. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Now, tell me a bit about this case. What happened? Um, well, essentially, this was a case involving some um, some animators that were working on the, the Sausage Party film. Um, right. And they brought a case to the Employment Standards Branch, uh, alleging that they should not be considered high-technology professionals under the Employment Standards Act. And what does that mean? Like, what was the difference between being classified as that and not being classified as that? So essentially, if you're a high-technology professional uh, professional under the Act, then you don't qualify for certain some of the protections under the Act. Um, and specifically, you don't qualify for the protections around uh, hours of work and overtime. Uh, so basically, in sort of layman's terms, you wouldn't be entitled to overtime pay if you're a high prep high professional uh high technology professional okay so then now they're entitled to overtime like what kind of hours are we talking about here well i wasn't personally involved with the case um so i i i don't know uh what was going on specifically they they didn't um talk about that in the determination um but uh Presumably, they've uh, gone through and done a full uh, kind of record uh, because they, they just came up with a, an amount at the end of the day. Right. Do you think this is a broader problem, though, Elizabeth, that companies have, like, getting paid overtime for people? Well, I think the, um, the challenge uh, right now is that I think we talk about rights to overtime in sort of broad swaths. Um, and when this kind of legislation came into effect in 1999, at that time, they used to base the right to overtime uh, in this section on your job title. Uh, and interestingly, in that, at that time period, a computer animator was actually a job that was explicitly included. Um, but a few years later, they changed that, that piece of the legislation. So now it's a functional definition. And it's based on your job duties rather than just your title. Uh, and where that can be challenging for people is you know, it requires a very technical analysis of exactly what kinds of jobs these people are doing, um, what proportion of their jobs uh, are in those particular roles. Um, and it just gets a little bit more complicated. Um, yeah. I'm thinking people would be a little bit surprised to find out, though, that, like, depending on your job title, it, it will depend on whether or not you can claim for overtime. Um, well, I think um, that, that's not uncommon. Um, there are just certain jobs of certain jobs that we expect that people will not be entitled to overtime. Um, so, for example, managers generally are not entitled to overtime. Uh, people in professions, um, you know, lawyers took themselves out of overtime uh, a number of years ago. Right. Uh, doctors are not entitled to overtime. Um, essentially, they're just certain kind of jobs and professions that, as a society, we recognize that either those people kind of have the skill set to negotiate, you know, overtime or rights for themselves, um, or their job is just such that it wouldn't make sense for them to be entitled to overtime. 
Right. So if people are thinking of going into this career, and I know a lot of people are, right? This is a very popular choice. What do they need yes. to know about how they figure out what their rights are? Well, I think if you're coming from the employee perspective, um, there are some really good resources out there to help. Um, the Employment Standards Branch uh, has interpretation guidelines online, uh, and they go through the act in, in plain language. Um, so that's uh, something that's, that can be really helpful for employees. Um, and I think the kind of key takeaway for them is to just not assume that what's happening is necessarily okay. <laughs> Is that generally what happens, though, in a lot of these cases? That they figure, oh, well, the boss must know what they're doing. I'm not entitled to this. I think there can be those assumptions, for sure. Um, and if you see everybody else just going along with it, you might just assume, well, maybe I don't have any rights here. Uh, so I think that's where education and, and knowledge is really powerful. Right. What's the, where's the best place for people to go, then, to get more information, Elizabeth? Um, I think uh, if you go to the Employment Standards Branch website, that's uh, got these excellent interpretation guidelines. That's a great place to start. Um, the only kind of caveat I would say is that that, that uh, the branch only deals with employment standards rights. It doesn't deal with collective agreements um, right. for people who are in unionized environments, and it doesn't uh, deal with the common law. Um, so you can also check with, uh, if you're a union uh, representative, uh, rep- represented by a union, you can check with your shop steward. Um, or you can go see a lawyer. Um, that's something that certainly doesn't help, uh, help people with as well. Absolutely. Know your rights on that one. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That is Elizabeth Reed, Employment and Human Rights Lawyer at Bouton Law in Vancouver. Well, we are live today down at BC Children's Hospital, and this, of course, is in support of their lottery, the Choices Lottery. For more information, you can go to bcchildren.com, but we also, when we're here, like to give you, you know, reasons to make that call or click on that ticket and buy it, other than the fact that, yeah, you want to win some nice stuff. But the money goes to some very, very important things as well. So we're going to tell you a little story about that right now, and it involves a remarkable little boy. His name is Tariq. He is four years old. Uh, His mom, Shauna, is with us now to tell us all about him. Hi, Shauna. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? How's Tariq doing? He's doing really good. He's been in treatment for just over a year now, and he's progressing just the way we want him to through this. What was he diagnosed with? He was diagnosed with stage four high-risk neuroblastoma, which is a cancer that starts in uh, certain nerve tissue. Okay, how did you know? How did you find out? Well, it was kind of a long haul getting to the diagnosis, but it started with like flu-like symptoms and it eventually grew to limping, not walking. We found it in his pelvis. It was 80% of his body, oh my 80% of his marrow, skull, like stage four spread everywhere. Um, so it, was, it got to a point where he just progressed to being so sick that um, they kept doing more and more testing until we found it. 80% of his body. Yeah, which is, which is actually normal, as sad as it is for this diagnosis, because all the symptoms are flu-like in the beginning. They don't have a reason to put drugs right. through CTs and stuff like that in the beginning. So it takes the progression of the illness before you actually find out what it it is. Once you found out then, what was it like being here at Children's Hospital? Must have kicked into high gear. Yeah, um, it was actually, it was scary, of course. He was just diagnosed with cancer. He's 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 my world, a little boy. Um, but they kind of took us in right away and made us feel really comfortable. They're very honest. And that's what I really appreciate about his oncologist is he's never misled me in any way. Um, and we got all the facts right away. So all I cared about was the game plan. I didn't care about prognosis, any of these things. I'm just like, tell me what we need to do and let's do it. 
And that's all I cared about. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. So we're talking earlier with Hitesh with the foundation who was saying that, you know, the money that is raised from this lottery goes to all the research and work and stuff that they do here at Children's Hospital. And that's why we're talking to you because without that research, what Tariq, the treatment that he's getting right now might not be possible. Yeah. So he's... Um he has a really aggressive protocol. So he goes through six induction cycles of chemotherapy, two back-to-back -back autologous stem cell transplants, a month of daily radiation. And then the most innovative thing is he is now eligible for six months of immunotherapy, which is new to the world. Um, not many kids receive it. Not many diagnoses are eligible for it. And he is. And it um, you know, increases his survival rate greatly. And so we're really appreciative for that. If he would have been diagnosed you know, a few years back, he wouldn't have received this. He would have stopped at radiation and we would have just hoped for the best. Right. Where this really like, you know, helps with his survival rate. What does it do? What is this immunotherapy? So the immunotherapy is using his own immune system to attack the remaining cancer. You can only do so much with chemo, with the radiation, with the transplants. And if there's anything remaining, which there was for him, this goes and gets all the remaining cells throughout the entire body. It's not targeting, like radiation's targeting a specific location. This is using his own immune system to fight it, which also reduces the risk of relapse because now his body can detect right. the cancer cells before they start rapidly spreading. You've become quite the expert, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> you, <learn a> lot. <laughs> you certainly do. What's it like, though, keeping up the spirits of a now four-year-old boy? I know he's got siblings, so that yeah. probably helps. But watching him go through, you said back-to-back -back chemo and 30 yeah. days of radiation, that's hard. Yeah, it was it was really tough. Chemo was um, chemo was tough. Going home with the side effects and stuff that was really tough. Um, child life here makes it amazing. You know, we get passes and we have um, they, they, they have programs here. They just did a teddy bear clinic where he gets to go and do everything that's ever been done to him. He gets to do on a little teddy bear. So he puts it through a CT. He gives it an ultrasound. He checks its heart. And they're really innovative like that. Even in the beginning when he was first diagnosed, I didn't even think of it. First thing they did was gave him a bear. And they said, here, we're going to put an IV in your hand like this. Let's just do it in the bear first. You can do it. So you can see exactly what we're doing. Right? So they've That's been really brilliant. good with him. Yeah. I've n I didn't know that they did the teddy yeah. bear clinic. Yeah, it was really cool. What a brilliant idea. Yeah. And so did, did you see that that, could, that helped him? Yeah, that's what we always do now. Anytime that, you know, there's something painful that needs to be done, it's like, here, let's let you do it first so you know exactly what's happening to you. And then you can do it for the teddy. Yeah, exactly. Wow, it gives you real appreciation of what yeah. goes, goes on here, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How is Tariq doing? Like, what's the prognosis like? What's... Um, the prognosis varies. Uh, there's many factors. Um, it's not the most amazing prognosis you know it's not something we want to hear it's not really something we talk about even with our yeah. oncologist because his thing is always you're either the 99 or the one who cares right so we don't That's talk a good to way to look at it, it. is yeah because yeah. like, if we're one percent we don't care we're going to keep fighting right um but you know with everything that he's receiving he's receiving top of the line treatment it's the front line treatment um it's what's the best known cure to him right now and all that i think about or ever remember is he has a curable cancer so Right now, that's all I can focus on. Right now, in this moment, he's doing good. Uh, everything is going exactly as we've planned. And, um, you know, we just hope that as we progress through this, that everything continues that way. Well, it sure looks like he's doing more than good right now because yeah. he's been running around outside, outside since you've been here <laughs> yeah. with some other little kids yeah. there. And that just is such a joy to yeah, see that happen. Is. Especially because he couldn't walk when we brought him in, right? So just walking is like such a blessing to us. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and he's got siblings. You see, you've got four kids all together. Yeah. How do the kids treat him? How does that work? Uh, they're really good with him. The older one's a little bit more soft because he knows what he's going through. There's a bigger age gap. But 
but the six-year-old who's pretty close in age to him is like no different like he's just another boy with an ng tube in his nose and you know poured out of his chest and i'm not he's sharing like, my toy i'm not sharing my toys with you, with you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. well listen shauna we wish you all the best Thank you. fingers crossed for Tariq. and isn't it amazing like when you watch children go through this that there it's so inspiring yeah it shakes you it changes you for sure yeah it really does listen all the best thank you so much thank you so much for joining us that is shauna emerson she's the mother of Tariq, who is four years old diagnosed with stage four high-risk neuroblastoma and undergoing immunotherapy here which is something that was not available even a couple of years ago and we're highlighting that because we heard from the head of the foundation today that the money that goes from the lotteries like whether it's the choices lottery which we're talking about today or the other dream lottery that they do later in the year the money goes towards research here at bc children's hospital so you're buying it because you want to buy the dream which is awesome go for it but that money is also going towards something good even if you don't win the dream right so that's the best thing about it and we are live today down at bc children's hospital now we are here to support the bc children's hospital choices lottery the early bird deadline for that is tonight the entire lottery is more than 94 percent sold as of well 11 o'clock this morning so i imagine that number's probably gone up just a little bit by now and there's good reasons why i mean you should see these early bird prizes they are impressive not to mention the grand prizes that you also get to pick from they are phenomenal Uh, for instance the early bird draw which is actually going to be happening on april the 18th but you have to buy your ticket by midnight tonight to get in on that you could win a private jet trip private lear jet trip to maui for six people with five nights five star accommodation 2019 tesla plus $50,000 cash. That's just one prize. You can also take $250,000 in cash instead. There will also be 50 extra early bird winners of $1,000 cash each. Like I can go on and on and on. You can see it for yourself though at bcchildren.com and get your tickets. And the reason why we're here is that we like to tell the stories of Children's Hospital too about why it is it's so important to buy tickets for a lottery like this and where your money goes goes for a very good cause we heard earlier from the head of the foundation that the money goes towards clinical research uh, at the hospital that's what we're going to learn more about right now with the help of our guest dr soren gant who's the director of clinical research here at bc children's hospital dr gant thanks for joining us Thanks for having me. We have to drag you out for this thing, right? To tell people about how important these lotteries are. No, it's really my pleasure to be here. Good. Let's talk about the research. We've heard how critical uh, the lottery is to provide more money for research, but can you give us an idea of where that money goes? Yeah. So when people buy a lottery ticket, uh, that money goes to support really groundbreaking research to help kids uh, in BC and really across the country and across the world sometimes. Um, Uh, We um, use that money uh, to develop new treatments and cures for kids, and and really that translates into hope uh, for a lot of kids and families, some of whom have uh, really devastating illnesses. Do we sometimes, do you think, underestimate the amount of research work that goes on here? We were were talking to Tariq's mom earlier. He's been diagnosed with stage 4 neuroblastoma, and she was saying that the immunotherapy treatment that he's undergoing right now might not have been available to him just a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think people often don't recognize that all of the care that we provide, all the medical advances that are available now, uh, ultimately came from research, the kind of research that we're doing now. And without the kind of research that's supported by uh, donors, um, 
we won't be able to um, make new developments and find new cures. What are some of the big things that the department's working on now? So there's so many exciting things that our researchers are working on. Um, you know, uh, one example is uh, something called uh, HeartMap, uh, which is used in more than 50 hospitals around BC to help uh, kids in mental health crisis uh, get uh, get the best possible care that they can get. Unfortunately, 10 to 20 percent of of, uh, of kids are affected by mental illness, and this is a really valuable uh, tool that's been uh, developed by researchers at BC Children's and, and rolled out across the province. How does that work? Um, well, it's a it's a tool to help uh, emergency room docs assess patients and and uh, and find out exactly the the best care that they need uh, to support those uh, those diagnoses and those patients. It, because often, like with children's care, especially for something like mental health, it's so specialized, right? That's right. Yeah. Is it hard for other doctors in other ERs to recognize that? Yes, it is, and and I think. You know, uh, at BC Children's, we are the referral center for the province and, and for the Yukon. Um, we uh, are the only uh, place in the region that provides uh, the, um, the, this level of advanced care. But a lot of what we do is meant to um, serve uh, uh, kids across the province and across Yukon uh, in places where they can't necessarily get to us easily um, to be able to provide a, a point of care uh, right. help. Yeah. How, do, how does the hospital do that then? How do you reach out to kids in healthcare facilities and other parts of the province? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, uh, Unfortunately, a lot of times uh, kids and families do need to come uh, all the way to Vancouver for their uh, care if they live far away, but we're uh, doing uh, more and more in the way of uh, outreach clinics and telehealth to be able to, to provide that expertise uh, um, throughout the region. So telehealth, that would mean that people, is it a video conferencing issue and they talk, they talk to the doctor and they can talk to the doctor here that way? Yeah, yeah, that's right. How yeah. do patients find that? You know, it, it, I think it's very well received, and, and patients frequently don't want to travel uh, yeah. uh, far for their care, understandably, and, and so uh, there are lots of examples of how that's been really effective. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of discoveries going on here uh, that similarly um, uh, help patients uh, uh, outside of Vancouver and, and, uh, and, and throughout the region. Um, there's... Uh, uh, um, research programs to promote active and healthy living uh, for kids, things like um, activesafe.ca or live5210 uh, that are really um, meant to keep kids healthy and prevent them from becoming sick. Is this like a, is, is this hospital, is this institution known across the country? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's one of the premier children's hospitals, not only in Canada, but in North America. Um, the research that we do uh, is is really uh, cutting edge and it's um, uh, recognized uh, around the world in, in many uh, in many areas of uh, uh, of, of study. Um, the donor funding really is critical uh, for that to be able to recruit and retain some of the world's best scientists uh, to do this kind of work. Um, we've got uh, around a thousand. Uh, researchers on campus and and that's correct wow and and uh, about 70 percent of those are 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 researchers that actually also provide direct care uh, uh, to children and so uh, it's a it's a really fantastic place in in the way that the uh, hospital and the research institute are 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 so interconnected you wear a couple of different hats 
You are also the associate professor of pediatrics, uh, meaning you do a lot in, you work with something called CMV. What is that? Uh, CMV um, is cytomegalovirus, uh, and, and um, it's not a virus that most people know a lot about, yeah. uh, but it's a really common infection. It, in fact, it's the most common congenital uh, infection in the world, um, meaning uh, that uh, babies are infected by their mothers before birth. Uh, this happens in, in around one out of every 200 babies that are born uh, in Canada, and it's a leading cause of birth defects, um, including hearing loss, intellectual disability, developmental delays. How are they infected? Like, where does the infection come from? Yeah, so infections are acquired uh, by moms through... Um, uh, saliva or urine from young kids usually who are infected and shed a lot of virus. Uh, they can also acquire it from um, from uh, their sexual partners, uh, but basically it's shed in, in bodily fluids. And, and in most people, uh, it doesn't cause any harm. Most of us don't know that we're infected at all, but when, when um, babies are infected before birth, uh, serious harm uh, uh, frequently happens. Are they infected in utero or is it while giving birth? Uh, in utero uh, is is when the the most damaging infections occur. Yeah. So then, when do you test for this, and what can you do if they test positive? That's a great question. Currently, there's not a lot of routine testing that goes on, and and most di most uh, infected babies aren't diagnosed. So that's one of the. Um, big efforts that we have is to improve the diagnosis uh, for these kids because there are some treatments and, and some, um, and some uh, care that we can provide that, that improves outcomes. We're also working hard to develop a CMV vaccine um, and the res research that we do uh, in my laboratory and in the vaccine evaluation center here uh, I think um, uh, holds a lot of promise for being able to prevent this disease in the first place. So is this, and I'd never heard of this before today, so can you say that with something like this infection, when you do have a baby that is born with uh, any kind of a birth defect and you didn't know why or didn't know where that came from, can you link it back to CMV? Well, that's one of the big challenges with CMV is a lot of times um, the damage isn't apparent at birth. And by the time the symptoms present, if someone's considering CMV as the diagnosis, it's hard to go back and make that right. diagnosis. So, so that's why we think newborn screening uh, may uh, be the best way to identify kids with this infection. And then can you follow them and say, okay, if they did test positive at birth, then we can see perhaps there's a potential for a problem down the line? Yeah, absolutely. So even kids who won't suffer um, uh, serious problems from the infection, we can follow those kids and make sure that they stay safe uh, and give their families anticipatory guidance about what to watch out for. That is so fascinating. And so, like, a couple of years ago, did we know about CMV? Yeah, um, CMV's been around a long time. Uh, there's been uh, some recent advances in terms of uh, being able to diagnose, this, uh, diagnose it and, and treat it uh, better, which is um, uh, increasing its... Uh, its visibility, right. uh, but we still need to do a lot more uh, to educate, especially um, women of childbearing age, about CMV because, um, you know, uh, avoiding uh, uh, infection through, you know, good hand washing when they're um, handling uh, diapers of, of young kids or, oh, or yeah. um, you know, avoiding getting uh, little kids saliva in their mouth may pre prevent them from getting infected and, and infecting their fetus.
Oh, so much fascinating work is being done here. I learned so much. Dr. Gett, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. See, and you can help support that kind of work that Dr. Soren Gant was just talking about by, yes, you guessed it, buying a ticket for the BC Children's Hospital Choices Lottery. More. Well, let's update you now on a story that we've been hearing about in the news today that broke a couple of hours ago, having to do with the mayor of Port Moody being charged with sexual assault. These allegations go back to 2015 is what we heard. He's got a court appearance coming up on April the 25th. But what else do we know about this at this point? Well, that's what we're going to find out now with the help of John Daly, investigative reporter, host of Back on the Beat on CKNW, which is on Saturdays at 11. And John joins me now. Hi, John. Hey, how are you, Simi? I am good, thank you. Boy, this, this story really hit it today. Like, this came out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it's been under investigation for quite some time. Now, as you probably know, uh, I interviewed the alleged victim, I guess it was back in October of last year. Uh, I went uh, to Rob Vagramov to uh, get his comments about this um, on audio and on video, Um quite some time ago and he wasn't having any of it and uh so we've sat on when did you first hear about it uh probably september last year and then i had to hunt down the uh the person the person the alleged victim is out of the country or was out of the country and that took a long time and then finally we're able to connect with her and uh, get the information and uh uh, you know, basically get her to the point where she was comfortable enough to do an interview, which we did do. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, we, the, the great minds at uh, Global decided that uh, we would hold this material until we had uh, Rob Vagramov's response to it and or there was a criminal uh, charge. Well, we didn't and get Rob happened? Vagramov's response, but we certainly got the criminal charge. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So what happened when you asked Rob Vagramov about this? Uh, he wouldn't come out and play. Uh, we went to his campaign office. This was during the mayoral campaign. And, uh, you know, his uh, campaign manager, I mean, they, they just thought that we were slinging mud of some sort. And, you know, they fundamentally, uh, uh, they talked to him. He was supposed to come down and do the interview at the office. He was coming down. And then all of a sudden it all went sideways because they realized that there were some other issues that we wanted to address as in addition to the, uh, you know, the big development issue, which was a big issue in uh, Port Moody. Uh, increasing development and, you know, what the future of Fort Moody is going to look like. Yeah, let's recap that a little bit because that was one of the first things I thought of when I first heard the story. This morning. I thought, oh, okay, wait a minute. This, this is somebody who has been in the news quite a bit over the last year. Uh, wasn't there always, uh, there was also a problem of him, uh, something that happened in a video, him talking to a homeless man? Oh, yeah. No, there's, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember when that was, whether it was uh, 2014 or so, or maybe even before that. Um, young, I mean, you, you could, the other thing to say, of course, is that Rob Vagramov, I don't know how old he is now, but he was one of the youngest mayors elected. I think he was 26 when he became mayor, right? So, uh 
you know, he may be 27 now. Uh, he claimed that uh, he did this, uh, you know, sort of smashing a beer can on your forehead and chugging the can of beer. He did that with a homeless person, and he made a video of it, and then the video was posted, and he said, oh, look, boy. you know, this is a stupid thing that I did, you know, shortly after getting out of college, and uh, it was an alleged random act of kindness, but in reality, uh, you know, he thought that he thought the better of it, and it wasn't really... Uh, too cool and uh, no you know, and it was in exchange for buying the guy a sandwich or buying him lunch right so I mean the whole thing was sort of I just had a tinge of exploitation to it and it was unfortunate and you know to, to his credit you know he got elected he got past that and uh, you know it, it didn't seem to become uh, such a big thing I mean I guess people were prepared to sort of say well okay now he's facing yeah. this, this uh, criminal matter which is very serious and uh you know, it's un, it's unfortunate. I've reached out to him. I've left voicemails for him. I've uh, sent him text messages, uh, you know, calling uh, the assistant to the mayor's office uh, at Port Moody. And, you know, the silence is deafening. We're, we're really trying to give him an opportunity to tell us what he's doing about this, um, how he intends to uh, deal with it, uh, what the implications are for him uh, as a mayor of a metro, you know, municipality, yeah. a growing, vibrant municipality i mean really what's happening here what are you going to do are you going to step aside are you going to continue to sit and you know i mean you're and there's no mechanism is there john for for port moody to remove him or for him to be removed not as far as i'm aware of no so i mean i think it's just a matter of you know what's appropriate frankly and uh does it it does it interfere with the day-to-day business of uh yeah. running council and being a mayor you know maybe it doesn't maybe the presumption of innocence we'll is see. strong enough that he can continue to chug along, no pun intended. Yeah, well, we will see about that. John, thank you for this. Hey, it's a pleasure. Listen in. You never that. know, that interview could pop up on the radio. Oh, we'll definitely be listening in. See, he sold that one. That is John Daly, investigative reporter, host of Back on the Beat. You can hear it on CKNW Saturdays at 11. Well, today we've been having a very interesting discussion about swearing and what is the etiquette behind that? This is all because of a poll that was done by a research company uh, that really shows how kind of widespread swearing has become. One of the most interesting stats that I heard about in this poll, in this survey, was that nearly two-thirds of the people surveyed said that they had heard someone swearing in public in the last month. Uh, 68% of women said that they'd heard that. 60% of men said they'd heard that as well. Have you? Are you one of those people? We're going to learn more about this now with the help of our contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Were you surprised by that stat? Um, About people, I think swearing is pretty widespread. I wasn't too surprised by that. I was surprised at the fact that a lot of people, it stands out to them because it doesn't stand out to me. I'm sure I hear a lot of people swear, but I actually cannot recall unless it's some sort of like very violent altercation that I hear a bunch of swearing right. every day. But um, yeah. So you're saying it's not noteworthy. It's not noteworthy to you. Not no- noteworthy to me, but apparently it is to more than half of Canadians. So it's pretty interesting. So I spoke with uh, Mario Canseco. He's the president of Research Co. And this he has a new survey out about etiquette and sort of what Canadians believe to be big faux pas. And as you know, Simi, I love this topic. You love this topic. But I was curious about why Mario decided to look into it. You know, it's a question that I asked, I think it was about 10 or 11 years ago, right after the mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robertson, swore during the council meeting. 
And I asked that question back then, and I thought it was a good opportunity to re-ask it again. We've had so many conversations related to language, how some words are making their way into television and radio that we didn't hear before, uh, the fact that we're in a more uncensored world. And I thought it was a good chance not to look only at swearing, but also at other behaviors that we would have uh, thought that were bad manners just a few years ago. So pretty interesting okay, there. I, yeah, I had forgotten all about that Gregor Robertson thing. That was the... Um, that was like a late night committee meeting and he was caught on a mic that he didn't think was public. And I remember that. That was so shocking at the time. Yes. Gregor Robertson dropped the F-bomb when his uh, mic was on and referred quite disparagingly to another political party. But uh, yeah, so that was one, that was what sort of prompted Mario's curiosity about this topic. I don't remember if there was a lot of uproar back then, but then again, I don't remember people swearing around me, so I have no idea. So, um, (laughs) Um, Yeah, as we heard, um, swearing seems to be an issue that a lot of Canadians encounter. Here's Mario again. Well, it is quite impressive. We see 64% of Canadians who say that over the course of the past month uh, witnessed somebody swearing in public. Women are more likely to remember at 68%. uh, Also, uh, Canadians over the age of uh, 55 at 68%. But when you look at the regions, you know, we, we would have assumed that Quebec, which is famous for uh, its swear words would be higher on the list, and it's the lowest at 51%. The highest is Alberta at 71%. So there's something to be said about the oil rig workers and their language because they are definitely ahead of the curve when it comes to swearing in public. <laughs> so maybe they just don't think twice about it. It's not that big of a deal at all. Yeah, exactly. And for us here, the um, average was 63%. So we're just under the national average. But uh, I thought it was pretty interesting and uh, that Alberta had the most instances of people swearing. So, I mean, Simi, do you find it offensive when you hear people swear? Uh, No. And I was talking about this off air here uh, with some of the people we're at BC Children's Hospital with. And I was talking about the show Deadwood. Mm Mm-hmm that I recently started watching this. This is an old show from the early 2000s on HBO. It only ran for three seasons. a bit of a cult classic. And I watched this show, and it just amuses the heck out of me. I love this show. But every second word is a swear word. And, like, and I mean really like a swear word, some of the worst swear words. And so I tend to watch it when I'm by myself because I find that if anybody else is in the house and they see me watching this they're like what are you watching like what is this show so there is still I think a judgment about swear words from people yes and they're actually you know there is a judgment for sure and I saw some very interesting research that was done uh, about uh, two years ago and they were saying that actually swearing there is some benefit uh, benefit to swearing that it has been scientifically proven to be good for you. It can help with your tolerance of pain. They say if you, you know, stub your toe or something, apparently letting on an expletive will somehow decrease the pain in your brain somehow. I'm not sure. I don't see the link, but I'm not a scientist. What do I know? But they also said that Unfortunately, when it comes to women swearing, there still is the thought that swearing is quite, you know, unfeminine, not very ladylike. And I will say, I try not to swear that much because I think that has been sort of ingrained in me as well, that I just don't like the way I feel when I'm, you know, swearing or having a potty mouth, as they would say. Uh, yes, I can see that. So did, they, did he look at that? Did he look at kind of what Canadians find more offensive? Uh, he just said that women seem to to remember moments where people used 
profanity. So that was kind of what uh. he said. But we didn't really get into like if if someone recalls a woman is wearing more than right. a man. But what I thought was another interesting et- etiquette issue that stands out to Canadian Canadians is the uh, the issue of phone use, Simi. Particularly oh. the issue of a person checking their phone or texting during a meeting or social event. So here's Mario again. Well, it's pretty high at 45%, and it's also uh, way higher as far as as, uh, those who remember it with those who are over the age of 55. If you grew up in a situation where you didn't have your phone, you weren't texting all the time, you weren't keeping in touch with somebody who was outside of the meeting or the social event, you're more likely to remember it. Um, It's quite striking because we only see 42% of millennials and 42% of Generation Xers saying that they saw this. So it might be a question more of the fact that this has now become part of their daily lives. You know, what we used to consider very rude, such as answering the phone when you were meeting with somebody or essentially texting when you were having this conversation with somebody who was next to you, it's now become normal. So this one will be interesting to track over time. If we wind up in a situation where checking your phone is now going to be second nature. Huh. Does that bug you, Claire? Like if you're, let's say you go out for dinner with a friend, just the two of you, it's a catch-up dinner, you haven't seen this friend in a long time. If that person has like got the phone sitting next to them and they're always checking it, doesn't that bug you? You know, I think it would bug me. Uh, Maybe not as much as say my parents, my dad really gets on me about being on a phone. Like, if I use my phone around him at all, he gets very, like, well, why are you on your phone? Blah, blah, blah. Um, however, it doesn't seem to apply to him if he uses his phone in front of me. But, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, what a surprise. Exactly. But I will say that I have had, I have some people in my life that are glued to their phone and that seems, that does bug me. So I think it is a generational issue, but I think that it is rude in most circumstances. And I would be really sure. curious to see what our listeners say about that. Is that if someone's glued to their phone, you know, is that a peeve of yours? And I, I thought it was pretty interesting. Now, here is something, Simi, that I think British Columbians need to hang their head in shame. 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 <laughs> shame. And what is that, Claire? What is the shame oh, for? Oh, Simi, this is so disappointing. So... <sighs> Apparently, when it comes to Canadians reporting seeing someone spit in public, the Mm. national average is 43%. So 43% of Canadians have said they've seen someone spit in public and they remember it. I've seen that. Yes. Well, of course you have, because here in BC, you know what the the average is for us? 50%. We're seven points higher than the national average. That means we have tons of people just spitting on the sidewalk. No, that's not what that means, Claire. What that means is, is that, that we notice it more often. So but maybe if we they're still it doing more it often, elsewhere. Maybe they're doing it more here, Simi. No, maybe that means that in other provinces they don't think it's as big of a deal as we do. I don't know. I think it's universally I'm taking pretty the positive gross. Side. Okay, fine. <laughs> that's nice. But um, here's what Mario had to say. Again, this is a situation that the older residents are more likely to remember, but this is a seven-point gap between the average in Canada and what we see here in BC, and we have seen certain places where you have those uh, a placards outside that say, please do not spit on the ground. So there's a reason for that, because we're at 50% compared to the rest of the country at 43. I think we're just grossed out by it more. I think that's, we're, we're actually, we don't like it. That's what we are expressing with that. Mm, interesting. I think that it happens here a lot, because I see it all the time, and it really does gross me out. Um, so, you know, I think that's too. a very shameful uh, shameful thing that's going on here. 
Um, okay, now let's talk about some other etiquette. Like I know one of the other things he discussed was uh, giving people bad news and whether you should do it face to face. Right. So this was actually this came as in one of the uh, second to lowest ranked uh, things that that people sort of remember and pick up on here. So according to the survey, only 31% of Canadians reported experiencing someone delivering important information via text or email instead of face to face. Yeah, it is a 31%, and I think this definitely has a lot to do with specific decisions that are taken. And what's striking to me here is the gender gap. Women are more likely to remember this and to be upset by this at 37%, whereas men are at 25%. So there's a little bit of a gender gap as far as if you're going to tell me something that I need to know, tell it to me face-to-face. Don't send me a text about somebody who's sick. Don't send me a text about somebody who's been fired. If you're going to deliver that kind of information, I don't want to text, I don't want an email, I want to talk to you. But there's still that generational gap uh, in, in a specific sense. It is younger Canadians who are definitely more likely to remember that this happened. But the key to the exercise here is the gender gap. Women are more likely to say, please don't do this. Huh. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So women are more likely to remember bad news via text message or by by technology. Right. But this is one of the lowest things that seemed to make an imprint on people. And I was wondering if it's because, you know, as we move to a more online world, maybe we're just okay with bad news being delivered online. Like, yeah, you meet the people you like, you get in a relationship with online, maybe you break up with Uh, them via text. I don't know. Maybe it's cool nowadays. I I wouldn't go so far as to say I think it's cool, but I think you're right in that we've kind of been beaten down on this issue is that 20 years ago, it was like horrific, this idea, right? That you could Mm -hmm. break up by, even 10 years ago, break up by somebody via text message. But I think there, it's something that has become more common. Yes, maybe we just accept it more that this is the way the world is and, you know, uh, face-to-face yeah. is phasing out. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> was there any good news in this thing, Claire? Yes, thank goodness there was because my spirit was being quite beaten down during this interview with uh, <laughs> Mario. It was very sad about all the things that, you know, we're doing wrong in the world and things that, peop- that we do that really irritate people. So there was some good news in the study. So here we go. Here's Mario. Smiles on everyone's face. More than three in five Canadians, 63%, uh, witnessed somebody holding a door open for a stranger. Uh, it's definitely one of those things that make us feel good. And those over the age of 55 are more likely to remember this at 76%. So there's still a little bit of a good argument. Uh, when it comes to this, the highest in the country is in Atlantic Canada at 79%. BC came in at 61%, so a little bit lower than the Canadian average, but still fairly decent. And the second one was somebody giving up their seat for a person who is disabled, pregnant, or elderly. Uh, 27% across the country. BC higher than the national average at 32%. Uh, it's a, a little bit low, but I think part of the problem is maybe you didn't encounter this type of situation over the past month because you're not on on a a public transit or you didn't witness something like this. But the numbers are fairly consistent across the country, but BC does a little bit better than the rest. Okay. I got to tell you, I see this every day. I see people holding doors open for other people every single day. Yeah, I see it too. I definitely do it. And um, I don't take the buses often anymore. But on the Canada line, I routinely see people giving up their seats for people that they believe are, you know, in need of the seat more than they are. So that's very nice. And uh, I thought that was really something the fact that BC is higher than national average, that's something where we can pat ourselves on the back and make up for some of the shame in the spitting department. But uh, you know, (laughs) okay, so we were going to ask people this question, but we already have your answer then. So for you, the biggest faux pas is spitting in public? I guess so. I really do find it to be quite gross, especially when you're like someone spits in front of you and then you're 
behind them and it's you just a spit on the ground. Details, I think people I need to need know though because they need no, to stop doing it. However, <laughs> um, I did talk to Mario about the whole thing about etiquette and learning more about what we think at like faux pas are. And he said the next thing he might look into, Simi, which I know you and I have always talked about, is the issue of thank you cards. Are they? Oh, you know? yes. Yeah. Are people still sending thank you cards? And uh, he well, said that are. he. I am. I can answer affirmatively. Yes. But um, he said that he was going to look into that. So I'm really ple- hope looking forward to seeing more of Research and Co's uh, work into the world of etiquette. All right. Thank you for that, Claire. Thanks, Simi. That is Claire Allen, our contributor, talking about etiquette issues. Oh, don't get her started on thank you cards. She she is definitely the expert on that. Well, as if there hasn't been enough going on at the B.C. legislature already with the expenses scandal and all the other everyday stuff, now we have this new discussion. It comes after a female staffer was told to cover up her arms in the hallway of the legislature. And as a result, there have been numerous uh, female journalists and staffers at the legislature who today have actually worn sleeveless tops and dresses in protest of this rule. And in fact, lots of politicians are weighing in on this as well. Uh, Finance Minister Carol James spoke to reporters about this just about a half hour ago. My understanding is that the clerk is going to be looking at the dress code and looking at uh, how we modernize that and adjust it. I think it's uh, really quite extraordinary that we're still dealing with that today. As a woman, you must have dealt with a lot of uh, comments about the clothing that you wear. What do you think about the fact that, you know, it often ends up being women who are the subject of such discussions? I think it's almost always women who are the subject uh, of these discussions. I think you've seen it through school boards and dress codes uh, for students in school. You've seen the modernization of those dress codes over the last number of years. There's been some very progressive work done in school boards, including right here in Victoria. Uh, And I certainly think it's well overdue. You know, last year we dealt with babies in the chamber. When I was first elected, we were still dealing with converting some of the washrooms to women's washrooms. there is enough space for women to be able to use the washroom. So I think the uh, dress code is long overdue and needs to be done. Given some of the other issues happening here, we now have like people who are hired on taxpayer dollars who are judging what is proper business attire for women. Should that be somebody's job description? Does somebody really need to police that? I think we all know this is a professional environment and people dress for business uh, clothing in the workplace. And I think it's ridiculous that we have uh, people policing that. I think people are adults in this place. They understand it's a professional environment and they dress accordingly. All right, so that is Finance Minister Carol James talking about this at the legislature today. Many politicians and and people who work at the legislature, women in particular, have been speaking up about this. Uh, And yeah, this has been enforced by some of the staff members at the legislature. Uh, The um, interim speaker at arms there, Randy Ennis, is one of the people who has been, has said that his staff, the staff members, have been enforcing this. And people are wondering, like, why? Why now? Why do this? Why turn this into an issue when it didn't have to be? So many people speaking out about this. One of the people who feels very strongly about this is uh, criminal lawyer Kyla Lee with Acumen Law, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Why do you feel so strongly about this? 
Well, this is an issue of, I think, uh, not just what's happening at the legislature, but a larger social discussion that we're having these days about policing women's bodies. We've seen this with discussions, uh, and I think uh, Carol James mentioned that in the interview with her, uh, with discussions at school boards and even very recently in the Lower Mainland with, uh, with school boards here wanting to impose significant dress codes on female students. And it's never men, in my experience. I've certainly never seen a case in in my entire life of a man being told he has to dress differently. It is always women who are the subject of this. And it it becomes an issue of, of telling women how to dress so that we can be put in a box and so that we can be silenced. I was seeing a comment that Sonia Fersenot made about this, actually, the Green Party MLA, when asked about this, like, well, what about the rules for men? And men have to follow the rules, too. And she said, listen, this isn't about uh, conforming to a man's world. It's about women being able to do what they want. Well, exactly. I mean, and we're not talking about women wanting to go topless in the legislature. We're uh, We're talking about women who are wearing professional attire that doesn't have sleeves. Everybody in the legislature has a set of arms. It's not as though this is something that is that is shocking or appalling or would shock the conscience of the public. This is something that we're all born with, we all have, and which is not considered a, a, a private uh, area of our body that we're not otherwise entitled to display. And so to police it in a workplace where it has nothing to do with the work that's being done, it's not a safety issue, is absolutely unnecessary. Right. It keeps coming up, though, doesn't it, Kyla? Like whether it's school boards and uh, trying to tell the trustees, trying to tell young girls what they should wear. Like, why does this issue keep coming up? I think it's because we can't trust men to, uh, and I mean, I I don't want to sound like I'm being glib here, but we can't trust men to control themselves. So rather than teaching men that, you know, if you get all titillated by seeing the skin of a woman, um, you need to get your head together, give yourself a shake and move on. um, we, We try to tell women to cover up. Um, and that's uh, over the time that has transformed into this, this social issue, issue about modesty, where women are considered to be uh, not modest and women are considered to be, you know, loose or, or lascivious or showing parts of their body that men could show without any difficulty. Right. It's also that issue to me about like, what is business attire and who decided that anyway? Well, exactly. And, and the definition of business attire was really uh, defined at a time when women weren't so prominent in the workplace, where many women were forced to stay at home, weren't permitted in workplaces, weren't permitted in legislatures, weren't seen in as, as large numbers as we have now in these positions of power and, and with huge amounts of responsibility. Um, but just as we've adapted over time to, to welcome and and seek out having women and other women in these positions, so too do we need to adapt um, to how women are going to uh, want to dress in those places of work. And as far as I'm concerned, unless it's a safety issue where you have the potential to be injured because your arms aren't covered, you shouldn't have to have your arms covered if you don't want to. Is this a good discussion then to have publicly? I mean, obviously it's a big issue today because of what's going on in the legislature. Is this an important thing to have out in the open? I think it is an important thing to have out in the open. It's always important to bring attention to the way that uh, women are treated differently uh, than men in the same environment and to the ways that there is still these, you know, these microaggressions against women and these 
these ways of, of trying to um, keep women down and keep women from advancing. I think we need to continue to identify them, continue to speak out uh, against them. And as women, we need to act in solidarity uh, with one another. When we see it happening, we need to call it out and we need to bring attention to it so that it changes not just in the legislature, but in every workplace. Well, Kyla, thank you very much for your time on this. Thanks for having me. That is Kyla Lee, criminal lawyer with Acumen Law.